Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin with our politics lead. In the next hour, President Biden and Vice President Harris are going to meet with 10 Republican senators. The GOP senators are pitching to the Biden administration to slim down COVID relief bill, a $600 billion counterproposal to the president's $1.9 trillion plan. The Republican bill is not substantively different from the Biden proposal. It is significantly less in funding, though, including no funding for some Democratic priorities, such as funding for states and cities. This will be the first major test of President Biden's pledge to work across the aisle. And a Biden administration source tells CNN that while the president is open to working with Republicans, $600 billion will not be enough to do the job with the nation in crisis. This challenge also comes as the Biden White House is facing blowback from Vice President Harris's interviews pushing urgent action on economic relief with West Virginia news media, a move seen as pressure on moderate West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Manchin was put off by the move, which to many political observers seemed rather ham-handed. As CNN's Phil Mattingly reports, the White House this afternoon says President Biden is not worried about going too big with the bill. He is worried about going too small. If you can't find bipartisanship on COVID-19, I don't know where you can find it. One hour from now, 10 Republican senators will put President Joe Biden's call for bipartisanship to the test. Biden granting a meeting on the group's COVID relief proposal, a $618 billion plan that would provide $160 billion for vaccine distribution and testing, $1,000 in direct payments, $300 for expanded unemployment insurance, and $20 billion for K-12 schools. We saw this as a good faith proposal they put forward. What this meeting is not is a form for the president to make or accept an offer. Yet the plan comes in less than one-third of the top-line total sought by the White House, with significantly less funding for schools, no funding for states and localities, and a shorter extension of the unemployment benefit. All, as Biden has made clear, bigger is better. The risk is not doing too much. The risk is not doing enough. Congressional Democrats are ready to move forward on a partisan basis this week. If we can't move forward uh, with them, we'll have to do it on our own. But already scrambling to ensure a crucial vote in their one-vote Senate majority. We're going to try to find a bipartisan pathway forward. I think we need to, but we need to work together. Moderate Democrat Joe Manchin bristling over this. The American people deserve their leaders to step up and stand up for them. And pushing back on a White House pressure strategy that has already fallen apart. That's not a way of working together. Which is why the White House today tried to quickly mend that fence and keep Manchin on their side. We've been in touch with Senator Manchin as we have been for uh, many weeks and will continue to be moving forward. And Jake, the necessity of keeping Senator Manchin in the fold will likely only be underscored by the meeting that's going to happen just behind me in about an hour. Republicans involved in their proposal make clear they want to go into this meeting and get a sense of where the president is and perhaps more importantly, where the president is willing to move. But Jake, when you talk to White House advisors, they make very clear not only is $618 billion well below something they will be willing to deal on, they aren't willing to move much off their top line. They are willing to revise in some ways and in some places, but they've made very 
very clear. The scope of the crisis calls for them to go big, and they aren't moving off of that top line anytime soon, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly on, on, uh, at the White House. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now, Republican Senator Joni Ernst of, of Iowa, who joins us here in studio. Uh, thanks for being here, Senator. I want you to take a listen to the Republican governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice, on CNN today, talking about the need for economic relief. Mm-hmm. But trying to be, per se, fiscally responsible at this point in time with what we've got going on in this country, if we actually throw away some money right now, so what? We have really got to move and get people taken care of and get people back on balance. The Republican uh, governor in in an area of the country not far from where you're from, uh, what's your response? Well, we do have to be fiscally responsible, but also provide relief to those that need it the most. And that's why I am very glad that I have a number of colleagues that are stepping up. We have 10 that will be visiting with the president a little bit later today and presenting a plan for moving forward. Additional vaccine relief, which is necessary, additional stimulus payments, an extension of UI insurance for those that are still unemployed across our states. Um, So we are moving forward with that plan. It does include a plan that I've worked heavily on, which is child care. And we know that to open up our economy, we need vaccines, but we also need to have daycare centers and others, other places for children to go safely so that moms and dads can get back to work. I think this is the responsible way of moving forward. And let's have those discussions. Let's do this in a bipartisan manner. The Republican proposal does not provide any money to state and local uh, governments, a key must have for Democrats who say these localities need funds to help distribute the vaccines, to increase testing, to reopen schools. Why not include some funding for states and cities? Well, this is a sticking point and where we want to make sure that we are targeting the relief dollars towards COVID-19 and alleviating the issues with COVID-19. What we don't want to see is a bailout of bad behavior from previous years. Now, Iowa passed a status quo budget this last year. They're doing okay. What my Iowa taxpayers are saying is, We don't want to bail out the states that haven't managed their own budgets responsibly. If we can provide dollars and do it in a targeted way to provide PPE, additional vaccines and relief, we're happy to do that. We just don't want to bail out bad behavior. So here's the brass tax part of this. Democrats control now the White House. They control the Mm -hmm. Senate. They control uh, the House. Uh, Republicans are saying this needs to be bipartisan. We need to do this in a bipartisan way. But in recent years, Republicans, when they controlled everything, passed tax cuts without any Democratic support. Uh, they nearly uh, repealed Obamacare uh, without any Democratic support. John McCain prevented that from, from actually happening. Um, so why is it such a horrible thing for Democrats to do what they want to do to help the country, in an, if it's not bi- bipartisan, uh, uh, just their own party, when Republicans did things pretty much on their own when it came to health care and tax cuts. Well, we see a lot of tit for tat. And you brought up some examples. Of course, Obamacare, the repeal of Obamacare. We have to remember Obamacare was passed with no Republicans. Um, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we would have been very happy to have Democrats come forward and work with us on proposals that would work for their states and their constituents. But from day one, they said, we are not going to participate in this. As we look towards working on COVID-19, we have worked in a bipartisan manner. Um, But here at the beginning of a new administration with a Democratic president, now we have Democrats in the Senate saying, 
we don't want to work with you, which is why I think it's so important that these 10 Senate Republicans have stepped forward. We've all been working together on the various pieces of this legislation. We want to work with Democrats. And I think it's important that we do that. The president promised bipartisanship in his inauguration speech. We really look forward to that, and we hope that he honors the promises that he's made to all of us. So you were one of the first Senate Republicans to acknowledge that Joe Biden won. Mm -hmm. You did so, uh, I think, in December after Mm -hmm. the Electoral College met. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So next week, you're going to start hearing arguments in the second impeachment trial of former President Trump. Uh, I know you have issues, questions about the constitutionality of a Senate Mm -hmm. conviction for somebody who's no longer president. But beyond that question, we've seen at least 150 arrests of various Trump supporters and far-right groups uh, after attacking the Capitol, charged with sedition and other crimes. If not impeachment conviction, what accountability should there be for Donald Trump, considering that he incited them and spread this lie that enraged them until they attacked the Capitol? I mean, he you, you must agree that he bears some responsibility. Well, and I have said that he does bear some responsibility by exhibiting poor leadership. Um, and let me tell you, just on January 6th, as we were going through that, I was in the Senate chambers uh, when rioters broke into the Capitol, and it was absolutely horrific. But I also place a lot of responsibility upon those that were rioting and assaulted our democracy by coming into the Capitol. Um, There was fear amongst the members. There was fear amongst those that were uh, on the floor during that time. There were two young pages, uh, young women that were crying and shaking. I took them with me as we evacuated. Uh, It was horrific. But we do have those that are being arrested for coming into the Capitol illegally. The president showed poor leadership. We know that. Um, and I will listen to those arguments. I, you're right. I do believe that this is unconstitutional at this point. We will listen to the arguments as they're presented. But as far as other courses of action, the president, former president, is now a private citizen there are courses of action that could be taken against a private citizen. So legal, if if somebody was going to prosecute him for that, that would be something you would have less of an issue with. That could be a course of action. Um, My role will be part of this jury in an impeachment conviction trial. But again, issues of constitutionality, we'll listen to the arguments. Um, But again, the, the president showed poor leadership, and I wish he would have said much sooner, please stand down. This needs to be peaceful. It didn't happen. All right, Senator Ernst, thanks so much for being here. It's good to see you again. And I hope to have you back to talk about issues a lot more in the coming years. Thank you, Jake. Only six states have given out 75% or more of the COVID vaccine doses that they have. Only six. The others are falling far short. What's being done to get more shots into arms? That's next. Then, how Roger Stone and Bill Cosby now have an indirect connection to former President Trump's upcoming impeachment trial. Stay with us. Serious new questions about distributing the coronavirus vaccine top our health lead today. Today, the Biden administration's top doctors appear to reject a proposal from a leading infectious disease expert on the Biden transition team's COVID advisory board, Michael Osterholm, who suggested delaying second doses of coronavirus vaccines to give as many first doses as possible to people 65 and older. Here is what CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky said in response. 
the clinical trials with the two vaccines that have been authorized now have a two dose, um, had two doses in the trials. We said we would follow the science in, in rolling out these vaccines, and that is our intent. The White House also announced a deal today to ramp up production of a fully at-home coronavirus test, as CNN's Nick Watt reports. Production now ramping up on this, an at-home, over-the-counter COVID-19 test. Roughly 95% accurate results in just 15 minutes. It can be used if you feel symptoms of COVID-19 and also for screening for people without symptoms so, so they can safely go to work, to school, and to events. Meanwhile, in the still sluggish vaccine rollout... This is just ridiculous. There's at least one simple way to speed this up. West Virginia Governor Jim Justice gets it. If we've got vaccines that are sitting on a warehouse shelf, I mean, they need to be in somebody's arms. But just six states, including his, have so far injected more than 75% of the doses they've been given. Today, a forceful message from the feds. Do not hold back for second doses. It does not need to happen and should not happen. Because unlike Team Trump, Team Biden has pledged to give states three weeks' notice when more doses are coming and how many. They now have the predictability that the second dose will be there when the time comes. Fenway Park, Boston, now a vaccination site. But when baseball starts? We'll figure it out. It's just too important. We've got to get everybody vaccinated. Elsewhere in the Northeast, weather is also getting in the way. Those that were scheduled for today or tomorrow in state-run facilities... Uh, they're going to be postponed. Meanwhile, an exodus of officials from New York State's health department, some fingers pointing at the governor's behavior, according to five sources who spoke to the New York Times. When I say experts in air quotes, uh, it sounds like I'm saying I don't really trust the experts. Because I don't. Because I don't. Here's the hope. After nearly two months, there are finally fewer than 100,000 Americans in the hospital right now fighting COVID-19. But variants remain a great concern and we continue to detect them in the United States. That more contagious strain first found in the UK now spreading here fast. Cases of this variant have now been detected in 32 states. So from midnight tonight, masks are going to be mandatory on all mass transit in this country, but still buoyed by those hopeful numbers. Some places are rolling back restrictions. Outdoor dining's back almost here in Los Angeles. This place getting a delivery. And final note, some pushback from New York's health commissioner on that New York Times reporting on the governor. He says, sure, some people left the department during the pandemic, but others joined with the necessary talents to confront this new challenge. And he says, listen, the department performed well. Just look at the numbers. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Uh, joining us now, CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Sanjay, w- let's start with um, Michael Osterholm's proposal to delay second doses, give the second doses to as many people as possible so more people get a first dose. Uh, the CDC uh, has said they're not going to do that. What do you think? Well, you know, I think that... Uh the, the data sort of speaks for itself here a little bit, and I, but there's a couple of caveats. L- let me show you what I mean here. The, the, the reality is that there does seem to be some protection from the first dose. If we look at Moderna specifically, 
one dose versus two doses. Uh, with, the, with the first dose, you get about 80% or so protection. Uh, with the two doses, as we know, it goes to 94.5% protection. Now, we don't have as much data around that first dose because it's only a few weeks that they follow people in between the first and second doses. So how long does that protection last? We don't know. The CDC has already come out and said you can wait up to, to 42 days, you know, uh, six weeks before you get the, the second dose as it is. So there may be some merit to it. Also, let me just show you this from Pfizer quickly. Jake, we talked about this right when Pfizer got their emergency use authorization. But you'll see two lines on this graph. The blue line is, is, is just placebo. People who got placebo, cases uh, went up. People continued to get uh, symptomatic disease at the same rate. That red line, that flattening, that's after the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. So you could see that first dose had a significant impact on overall people getting sick. How long does it last? Is there enough data? I don't know. But I think, you know, if the, if the numbers continue to take off, uh, getting as many people protected may be uh, the, the, the position that we have to sort of take. The Biden administration uh, announced a deal to increase uh, production of the Elum, which is an at-home coronavirus test. Uh, you can swab your nose and then you get results delivered to your smartphone within 15 minutes. Uh, the mm-hmm. company says the test is 95% sensitive at detecting COVID. Um, how big of a difference do you think this could make? I- I've heard some people say, I don't need testing, I need the vaccine. But w- what's your response? I mean, I don't, I don't think it's either or, you know, I mean, but both, both are, are, are helpful for, for certain. The thing about these antigen tests, uh, Jake, and here's what I've sort of uh, learned talking to lots of people over the past few months, is that the antigen tests are really good at answering the question that I think people really want answered, which is not necessarily, do I have presence of virus in my body? The question is, am I contagious, right? If you have symptoms, you should stay home. I think that even pre-COVID, that was always the right answer. So this is for people who don't have symptoms and they just want to know, am I carrying virus unknowingly and could I potentially spread it? And those tests are really good at being able to, to answer that question. So even as the vaccines roll out, I don't think the, the, uh, the issue of testing goes away. It'll still be important. Uh, and Sanjay, uh, you just heard Nick talk about that New York Times piece today about all the top health officials in New York who have resigned under Governor Cuomo. Um, But take a listen to this quote from Governor Cuomo uh, from Friday. When I say experts in air quotes, uh, it sounds like I'm saying I don't really trust the experts. Because I don't. Because I don't. Sanjay, that seems like a wildly irresponsible thing for a leader to say during a pandemic. We, we need the public to believe the experts. Do you have any concerns? I'm really uh, quite, quite stunned that that's what he said. And I'm, I'm curious to, to talk to him and understand, clarify that a bit. I mean, it is true that New York has had success. They had terrible numbers, I mean, in the spring of last year, but were able to bring those numbers under control. A lot of that was because of the experts and because of sort of carrying through on plans that sometimes are hard to sort of understand at the time. But, you know, with with time actually make more and more sense. I'm just um, yeah, I think it's irresponsible. And I think the biggest question is there's enough people out there who are already hesitant. They don't believe the virus. They don't believe in getting a vaccine. They don't understand the value of testing. If you start to take away some of the the uh, the credence of these experts, I think that's really, really harmful, especially now. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. With just one week until former President Trump's impeachment trial, his defense team is undergoing some significant changes, and his defense strategy has some Republicans nervous. Stay with us.
In our politics lead, former President Trump desperately trying to cobble together a legal team just a week before his second impeachment trial. So many lawyers who had signed up quickly headed for the exits because they disagree with his defense strategy. As CNN's chief domestic correspondent Jim Acosta now reports, Trump's legal hopes now appear to rest with a defense attorney who has ties to Jeffrey Epstein and the former prosecutor who once refused to bring a case against Bill Cosby. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. With little more than one week before his second impeachment trial, this time for inciting the insurrection at the Capitol, former President Donald Trump is still working out the kinks on his defense team, bringing on two new attorneys, David Schoen and Bruce Castor, to replace the five lawyers who bailed on him last week. It's likely Trump has seen his new impeachment attorneys in action on television. This commutation is a great tribute to President Trump. Schoen defended longtime Trump advisor Roger Stone, whose sentence in the Russia investigation was commuted by the former president. In an interview published last year, Schoen said, I represented all sorts of reputed mobster figures. Castor, a former prosecutor, made headlines for declining to charge actor Bill Cosby for sex crimes. Did I think she, he probably did something inappropriate? Yes. Did I think that I could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt based on available, credible, and admissible evidence? No, I didn't. Adding to the coming impeachment spectacle, Trump is expected to resurrect his big lie that the election was stolen from him. To me, that just says it's really important that as a country, uh, we come face to face with, with the facts and the truth. Democrats will steer their case to Trump's role in the Capitol siege, noting even some of the rioters, like the so-called QAnon shaman, believe the former president is responsible. He regrets very, very much having not just been duped by the president, but by being in a position where he allowed that duping to, to put him in a position of making decisions that he should not have made. Another problem for Trump, his ties to GOP lawmakers who are still lying about the election, including Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who tweeted over the weekend, I had a great call with my all-time favorite POTUS, President Trump. Over at the White House, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the new administration isn't paying much attention to the lingering Trump drama. We don't spend a lot of time talking about or thinking about President Trump here. Former President Trump, uh, to, to be very clear, I can't say we miss him on Twitter. Now, a Trump advisor said more attorneys may be added to the former president's legal team in the coming days. And a GOP congressional source told me many Republicans are uneasy with Trump's apparent plan to peddle his election lies at his impeachment trial, quote, especially after January 6th. And a separate Trump advisor said the ex-president still, quote, wants the world to know the election was stolen from him, which is obviously false, Jake. Uh, and with Trump's impeachment trial set for next week in the Senate, the White House says it is reviewing whether to offer intelligence briefings to the ex-president, a courtesy extended to former commanders and chiefs uh, in the past. The press secretary said today that's still under consideration. Jake. All right. Jim, thanks so much. You bet. Just minutes from now, President Biden is set to meet with Republican senators. But is this bipartisan outreach delaying the inevitable? Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. Uh, let's discuss, bring in Jackie Kucinich, as well as Eugene Daniels, who's the White House correspondent for Politico and co-author of Politico Playbook. Welcome. Uh, Eugene, let me start with you. Uh, the former president, Mr. Trump, apparently wants to build a defense team, uh, build a defense, rather, around the lie, the big lie that he actually won in a landslide, the election was stolen from him. What's the blowback going to be uh, at the Senate? 
Yeah, I mean, the thing is, President Trump could have taken the W, right? Republicans are already ready to make this process argument to say that you can't impeach or convict um, someone who's no longer president, um, though he was impeached while he was president. And he doesn't want to do that. He is going to test their loyalty. He's going to test how far they will go to, like you said, spread um, lies, spread conspiracy theories about the election that are categorically untrue. Um, and so he could have had his lawyers roll in make that argument, keep it really simple and then do whatever he's going to do next. So it's going to continue to, you know, rip the party apart in the ways that we've already seen. And more importantly, um, it's going to be, be retribution. President Trump's going to use it as retribution for those who don't make that argument, who don't say that um, this talk about the election being stolen. So it's going to, um, the blowback in the Senate, we'll have to see. I think that one of the things that's going to end up happening is that we are not going to, um, here, we're going to hear from people like Mitt Romney um, that this process argument is almost bunking, that it doesn't really matter. And, and um, that's going to, like I said, continue to rip the party apart. And President Trump seems focused only on himself here once again. Yeah, once again. Uh, Jackie, let's talk about the current president. In just a few minutes, President Biden is going to meet uh, in the Oval Office with a group of Republican senators uh, discussing COVID relief. The White House keeps emphasizing the importance of this bill being big. $1.9 trillion is what they've proposed. The Republicans have it closer to $618 billion. Uh, what do you think ultimately is going to happen here? Is he going to go with big over bipartisan? Is there going to be any way to split the difference? It, terms of, it seems to be trending that way because of the way that the meeting has gone from being this important meeting to just, you know, a conversation. Um, and let's not forget where Biden is rooted, though. He's rooted in the Senate. He's rooted somewhere where um, he really wants to be able to make a deal. But that doesn't mean it, it's going to be a deal that uh, that he is able to to make, frankly, because it's not really his decision what ends up moving through the House and the Senate. And Democrats seem very uh, hell-bent on keeping their number, keeping their bill intact. Uh, and um, you, what, no matter what the White House uh, decides to say on this. But this is a big test for the Democratic majority and for the new president as to um, where they're going to draw the line with Republicans and, you know, what what, if anything, um, they'll give them uh, in return for perhaps some of this bipartisan outreach. And Eugene, President Biden has witnessed in his very long career a, a lot of, quote unquote, bipartisan attempts uh, and th that end up getting little to no Republican support. There's the Clinton budget deal, uh, no Republican support, the 2009 Recovery Act, Obamacare. Uh, do you think that this experience uh, I mean, Democrats really tried to have Obamacare be bipartisan, and ultimately it wasn't at all. I mean, do you think that he's just jaded, I guess is one word, realistic might be another, to think, like, they're never going to vote for what I want anyway? Yeah, I think, like Jackie was saying, like, President Biden is... Um the idea of bipartisanship is at the core of who he is, but he was there when, um, you know, what happened with President Obama. He was there when Republicans obstructed President Obama and Vice President, then Vice President Biden at every turn. And there are Democrats that are worried that they are going to get played, right? They almost have PTSD um, of that happening once again. And I think um, something that's really interesting about this is there's almost no blowback for 
President Biden and for Democrats to kind of ram this through, right? The blowback of, you know, using reconciliation, having Vice President Kamala Harris come and, and break that tie, the, the blowback is minimal because people want this, right? We saw the governor of West Virginia um, saying, kind of disagreeing with his own senator saying, we want this money, we need this money, and trying to, and making, and if Democrats can go around saying, you know, we're the party that gave you X amount of dollars in your pocket were the ones that gave state and state and local officials money, um, and the Republicans didn't. That's a that's a compelling argument for them to make. All right, Eugene Daniels, Jackie Kucinich, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Coming up, President Biden already facing roadblocks for an executive action he has not even taken yet. What is it? Stick around. In our politics lead today, President Biden says he plans to move forward with new executive actions, these on immigration, tomorrow, even though a judge temporarily blocked his day one order to pause deportations. CNN's Ed Lavendera now looks at the reality Biden faces from the border wall to citizenship for dreamers to reuniting separated migrant children with their families. Ilse Mendez came to Laredo, Texas with her parents at the age of two. She's now 33. Everyone in her family, including her four children, are now U.S. citizens, except her. Mendez is one of the hundreds of thousands of people known as dreamers. President Biden is proposing a pathway to citizenship for these immigrants who have been able to live in the U.S. because of the Obama-era program known as DACA. We've lived four years of Trump stringing us along with that fear and anxiety, so... I've, I'm hopeful that something will, uh, something positive will come out of these uh, different legislations or these executive actions that Biden has brought. The Trump administration rolled out four years of controversial programs that critics have often described as inhumane, but that many conservatives have celebrated. There are still 611 children separated from their parents as part of the Trump administration's zero tolerance policy. The Biden administration is proposing a task force to reunify those families. I will accomplish what I said I would do, a much more humane policy based on family unification. On other issues, Biden will face legal challenges. The president issued a 100-day pause on deportations, but a federal judge has temporarily blocked that move. And there are still about 28,000 migrants sitting in Mexican border towns seeking asylum through the controversial Remain in Mexico policy. Advocates have pushed for these migrants to be allowed into the country while their cases are handled in immigration courts. Former acting director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Ronald Vitello, warns that Biden's immigration policies could create another surge of migrants at the southern border. My warning would be learn from the history that we already have. When you roll back those elements of what's in place now, then you're going to you're going to encourage people. And then there is the issue of the border wall. How much do you enjoy this view? Uh, I'm going to see it through bars. It's going to be horrible. Last year, Joseph Hine was bracing for construction of the border wall across his ranch on the bank of the Rio Grande in Texas. We returned to see him after President Biden halted all construction. Along the road that they built, they've put this markers. But now, Hein feels like he's won the border wall fight, at least for four years anyway. The way I saw it was a hostile takeover of my property, and I was being treated like a second-class citizen. And they were fine and dandy with it.
And Jake, President Biden is also saying that he is going to push for a pathway to citizenship for millions of undocumented immigrants already in the United States. And that would include an eight-year process of criminal background checks and ensuring that those immigrants are learning English. But as everyone fully well knows, uh, they are walking through the immigration political minefield. Jake? All right, I love Andera. Thank you so much. President Biden facing his first foreign policy test involving a military coup and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Stay with us. In our world lead today, President Biden threatening sanctions on Myanmar after a military coup took control of the government and detained its leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was overwhelmingly elected back in November. But the military is pushing forward bogus claims of fraud and biased campaigning. Let's bring in CNN's Ivan Watson. Ivan, as this coup heads into a second day, Myanmar's military is going to great lengths to cut off public access to the outside world. That's right. Telecommunications have been patchy. The country's TV stations were almost all cut off. The Internet curtailed dramatically. Reports that even radio frequencies appeared to have been jammed. It was only a military-owned TV station that was allowed to broadcast, and that's where they announced a one-year state of emergency and that the commander of the armed forces was now assuming leadership of the government as senior civilian officials had been rounded up before dawn by troops on Monday. Now, the disagreement stemmed from the results of an election, a national election that was held on November 8th. And that's when the de facto prime minister, the Nobel Peace Prize winning Aung San Suu Kyi, her party, and of course she's in, under house arrest now, uh, her party won a landslide and absolutely clobbered the party that was backed by the military, winning more than 80% of the seats in parliament. The military immediately started crying election fraud without providing any evidence. And the coup took place hours before the new parliament was supposed to have its first session on Monday. And this is the first real challenge, international challenge, for the new Biden administration. He has called this an assault on Myanmar's transition to democracy. He's threatening sanctions. But here's the deal. The new military leader was already under U.S. sanctions since 2019 for his alleged role in the ethnic cleansing of hundreds of thousands of Rohingya Muslims who fled to Bangladesh in 2017. Burmese that I'm talking to are worried their country is headed into the darkness and isolation that they experienced for more than 50 years under military rule before this aborted experiment in democratic transition. All right, Jake. Ivan Watson with a successful coup attempt. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. In our national lead, the only American service member to receive the Department of Defense's sole survivor designation is now sharing his story of brotherhood and bravery. Bo Wise served as a Marine in Afghanistan. His brother Jeremy was a Navy SEAL. His brother Ben was a Green Beret. Bo's brothers both died in Afghanistan. Bo is now honoring their legacies in a new book called Three Wise Men. And retired Marine Sergeant Bo Wise joins me now. Um, Sergeant, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's an honor to have you on. After Ben died, just two years after Jeremy, you were taken out of combat by the commandant of the Marine Corps, General James Amos, so that your family would not suffer another loss, the so-called, uh, you know, Private Ryan kind of um, story. Uh, you said at the time you didn't think it was fair and even that it was wrong. Why do you think you and your brothers 
felt such a strong calling to serve your country? And are you still upset by General Amos's decision? Uh, you know, we, we had it from an early age. I kind of, I think, learned from them and uh, my parents, you know, very patriotic and wholesome upbringing. We, but um, no, I'm no longer upset. I, I don't think that uh, uh, there's, there's any blame. I, at the time, I wasn't a father and and now I am. And as a father, that kind of lends the perspective of, you know, if it were my children, what would I want? And I think that the, the decision that General Amos made was, um, you know, for the sake of my family. And it was a good decision. At the end of the book, uh, it's a great book and I really recommend it. Um, and there's a very moving, a lot of moving parts of it. But at the end, you, you talk about how you reveal you had, you had contemplated taking your own life. You say, quote, Jeremy and Ben Wise saved a lot of lives during their eight combined com- combat deployments and more than 14 years spent defending our nation. The last life they saved was mine, unquote. Can you elaborate on how your brothers uh, have helped to inspire you so that you're here uh, today, which we're so happy about? Well, thank you. I, you know, I, uh, I, I did go through a pretty dark phase, and um, there was a moment where I was contemplating it. And uh, one of the things that I thought about most was Ben in his last moments. You know, when Jeremy passed, it was a, a suicide bomber, and I knew nothing uh, about what he was doing because he was working for the Central Intelligence Agency at the time. And but with Ben, you know, he was wounded, and he uh, it took him six days. You know, he was a fighter, and um, you know, after those six days, I thought about everything that he went through fighting for every impossible breath, even when the amputations were up to the hip. And I just said, you know, if Ben can fight through all of that, then I can fight and I'm going to keep fighting. What do you want people to know most about your brothers and their service to this country? You know, I always wanted to to tell a story of the preservation of life, that they died saving lives. And that was something that they excelled at, you know, pulling the trigger is something that you do when you have to. Uh, but they, they embodied the warrior ethos and uh, the preservation of life was something that they you know, were very, very good at. Sergeant Bo Wise, author of the book, Three Wise Men. It's a great book, highly recommended. After the show, I'll, I'll tweet out a link uh, after you send it to me so people can get it. Thanks so much for joining us today. And thank you, of course, for your service and your brother's service. Thank you, Jake. Thanks for having me. As we remember the many victims of COVID today, one of those lives lost is sadly television writer Mark Wilmore, who died of COVID and other conditions on Saturday at age 57. Mark was a sketch writer turned cast member on In Living Color. He went on to write for shows, including F is for Family and The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and The Simpsons. Comedian Larry Wilmore described his little brother as, quote, the kindest, gentlest, funniest lion of an angel he's ever known. He is survived by his wife and two daughters. May his memory and the memory of all of those lost in this pandemic be a blessing. Our deepest condolences to Larry Wilmore and his family. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 